You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. As is well known now, John McCain has chosen Alaska Governor Sarah Palin as his choice for his vice presidential running mate. I had indicated in a podcast about uh, talking about Joe Biden that the Joe Biden choice, while it provided uh, Barack Obama with something that he probably needed, was to show that there would be experience on the ticket. Because it was an unconventional choice, because he had chosen a person who's been in Washington a long time, he did open himself up a bit to uh, someone like McCain making a historic choice. And part of this, going back to our podcast about the scheduling of conventions, this uh, very advantage handed to McCain is the result of a tradition that the incumbent party goes last. It's not clear at all that McCain would have chosen Governor Palin had Obama chosen, say, Hillary Clinton. Otherwise, it might have just been more of the same. But the Biden choice did open that up, and McCain took that opening. It appears from the kind of insider accounts that you get, uh, which can't say they're always reliable, that this was a last-minute choice for John McCain, that he perhaps had wanted uh, Joe Lieberman. Palin's experience is as a councilwoman and mayor and then governor of Alaska for just about 20 months. Not really a long time. Mostly what that does in my mind, and obviously what the Obama campaign has seized on, is it removes the argument about experience in this election to a certain extent. Of course, um, Sarah Palin is the vice presidential nominee and Barack Obama is the presidential nominee. By picking someone so relatively unexperienced, the Obama campaign correctly, from a political strategy point of view, has sort of sought to remove the experience argument by pointing out the lack of experience that Governor Palin has. Having done a podcast previously on experience and the presidency, I'll remain consistent to what I said in in that cast and that experience is a really fuzzy thing and it's very difficult. It gets thrown around in these presidential elections as if someone could really be experienced for the presidency. There's no course. There's no real opportunity to learn what it's like to be a president. Abraham Lincoln served one term as a congressman from Illinois, a Whig congressman of little influence in the Congress. And that was his political experience prior to becoming president. Of course, he ran for many things and made a lot of speeches and was a railroad lawyer, etc. Woodrow Wilson was the governor of New Jersey just about as long as Sarah Palin had been governor of Alaska. He was elected in the 1910 election, and he would run for president in 1912. Obviously, he led the country through World War one. So I don't see the experience argument when it's thrown at either Barack Obama or at Sarah Palin. I just don't see it with too, with too much weight. A good part of the job of being president is being able to communicate well and being able to be convincing. Whether or not uh, Governor Palin fits this mold, I think the jury is very much out. This is a very controlled environment, this speech 
and uh, there's lots of more hurdles to go through. McCain has nominated a governor, albeit one with limited experience, and so this is the only governor of the four people running in this election. The Obama-Biden ticket, if it wins, will be historic because it'll be two senators. And, of course, the last time that happened was in 1960. Senator Kennedy and Senator Lyndon Johnson both won um, for president and vice president. That was, of course, the last time a sitting senator was elected president. The time before that was 1920. So this election is going to break that barrier either way. Either Senator McCain will leave the Senate or Senator Barack Obama will leave the Senate and become president, which will be good news to somebody in Arizona or Illinois. Again, this has led to the charge by Governor Palin in her uh, speech recently that Barack Obama or Joe Biden have never run anything. And she's, of course, using that partially defensively. I've run a town, and these guys haven't run anything. From a historical perspective, though, senators have done quite well uh, as presidents. Of course, Warren Harding probably isn't a good example, but John F. Kennedy certainly had some successes towards what would unfortunately be the end of his life, and especially the Cuban Missile Crisis. It could not escape my attention that Governor Palin mentioned Harry S. Truman as someone that was one of her role models, came from a small town, and if he could do it, so could she. Well, the charge she leveled at Barack Obama about having no executive experience could have been leveled at Harry S. Truman, who was a senator for about 10 years before becoming vice president and then president. Prior to that, he had been a county commissioner, and prior to that, he had been a haberdasher, as you pointed out. So it's kind of interesting when we invoke history, and it's, it's so common for Republicans to invoke Harry Truman, and one has to really laugh because... If he were alive today, there was no one that sort of disliked Republicans more than Harry Truman. And when he gave his nominating speech, it was not unlike Governor Palin's speech in that he really came out swinging and said, I'm going to beat those Republicans and make them like it. Something that we couldn't imagine anyone saying today. Yet it seems like the elder Bush, George H.W. Bush, Gerald Ford... George W. Bush and now Governor Palin all seem to bring up Harry Truman. It really be, has become the Republicans' favorite Democrat. They don't bring up FDR that often. I'm going to have a podcast comparing the nomination of Geraldine Ferraro and the nomination of Governor Palin, so I won't get into too much detail about the, the story there. So I want to address just two recent ideas in this campaign and sort of uh, debug them a little bit. One is that this is a historic nomination. I kind of cringe at that uh, because the nomination of Geraldine Ferraro occurred 24 years ago. So the Democratic Party was 24 years ahead of the Republicans in choosing a woman candidate. To be fair, there's two other things to say. And one is that Geraldine Ferraro was chosen in 1984 when there seemed to be very little chance of a Democratic victory. And the Democratic Party has not continued uh, that tradition by nominating a woman again for national office. But they do deserve credit for being first. So I think it's, I'm a little bit skeptical of an argument that this would be a historic nomination because, you know, it really was 24 years ago. I think that's really stretching the word uh, historic a bit. 
Uh, it is, of course, the first Republican woman to be nominated for vice president. But is that really historic, just that the second party has has finally caught up? And uh, there's a couple things to mention there. It's not uh, like the Republican Party hasn't had opportunities now since 1984 to nominate women. Even if you want to think of it as parties will nominate a woman for vice president when things don't look very good. The 1996 campaign, for instance, didn't look very good for Republicans. Bob Dole could have nominated Christy Whitman, uh, Kay Bailey Hutchinson, a number of other women. He did not. In 2000, you know, he nominated Jack Kemp. In 2000, uh, certainly George W. Bush could have nominated any number of uh, Republican women, including Christy Whitman again and Kay Bailey Hutchinson again, Susan Collins from Maine, uh, Olympia Snow from Maine, numerous women in uh, Republican uh, politics at that time who could have been nominated. He chose not to. It hasn't been a priority for the party. So in that case, it's definitely a surprising choice for McCain, and we knew it was going to be a headline-making choice. I don't think that means it's a historic choice other than everything's historic, of course. What happened five minutes ago, historic to a certain extent. I also wanted to address the concept of the heartbeat away factor. It's being repeated a lot, and certainly not surprisingly, that Governor Palin would be a heartbeat away from the presidency. And it's often brought up that John McCain just had his 72nd birthday, and he's had a couple bouts with uh, skin cancer, etc. I can understand why the question is being brought up, and I would certainly, by any objective measure, say that obviously it's a much greater concern with John McCain than it is with Barack Obama. Even if you factor in the fact that uh, until recently, Barack Obama was a smoker. Still, obviously these health concerns are not as a big concern with a 47-year-old. So while I think it's something to look at I just don't think it's uh, as important as is being raised. What we're really talking about here is can a 72-year-old make it to age 76? The average life expectancy of a white male is 72 by most uh, actuarial standards. But I think when you consider that this is an individual, certainly the President of the United States will receive the best medical care, and there's been such advances, and there will even be more advances in the next couple of years, and that uh, McCain shows no indication of what is the number one killer of men and what puts most men at, at that life expectancy of 72, if that's all they get. And that's heart disease. doesn't seem to have a, a problem with that. And that these days, even a lot of that heart disease, there's, there's drugs that can uh, control that, and the drugs just keep improving. So while it's true that presidents, you know, President Harding... Uh, was only not even 60 when he uh, passed away of heart disease and uh, some viruses. It was just an untreated condition. Uh, with the medicine of today, there's no way that uh, Warren Harding, or I shouldn't say no way, but it's unlikely that Warren Harding would have died in office. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt, a lot of his conditions were really undiagnosed, or there was nothing that could be uh, done about it. So as a 61-year-old, he was pale and frail and, uh, and uh, would soon die. Things are very different now. Again, you know, if we're talking about one term, we're talking about a person reaching to 76. And in today's America, that seems 
fairly likely. So uh, while it's an issue to raise, certainly, and it does highlight a bit uh, how important his vice presidential choice is, maybe too much is being made of it. Should we just immediately assume that this is going to be a commander-in-chief story where, you know, Gina Davis becomes the president? Anything's possible, of course, and anytime you're recording words like me, you have to kind of knock on wood because anything can happen. But we've got to look at what's likely. And in today's America, a 72-year-old reaching 76, doing the thing they love all their life. People say it's a stressful job, but at the same time, someone like McCain, this is what he lives for. Probably likely is going to make a term... Whether he'll make a second term, now that's an interesting point to raise, and I think most Republicans voting for McCain, that is where you have to start to think about it. Are you really electing a person that's only going to uh, uh, be available for one term? The answer there might probably be yes, because we're talking about, of course, Reagan made it to a second term, and uh, Bob Dole uh, still alive now, and uh, had he won the election in 96... He would have lived, what's occurred as any indication, well past his uh, second term. So again, one of these things, realize the issues being raised, and I am arguing for where it should fit in one's mind, and given a kind of historical uh, perspective. And in this case, historical contrast to the number of presidents who have died in office in the past. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. All right, I want to take a question here, an interesting question from a jack of all thumbs in regards to the podcast on foreign political powers involving themselves in American elections. And that we raise the question of uh, one campaign or the other could ask who lost Russia, which party was responsible for Russia going from being a democratic state to more of a totalitarian one. 
just like in the 1960s they asked, who lost Cuba? Jack of all thumbs right, writes, who lost Russia indeed? An excellent podcast and apologies for my late reply. In the past eight years, we've poked stick after stick in Russia's eye, including placing missiles in the former Soviet bloc countries, backing Kosovo's bid for independence, and now the Georgia debacle. Do you think Russia will take advantage of our overextended military, our depleted alliances, and the opportunity presented by the humanitarian disaster in Cuba from Hurricane Gustav and re-enter Cuba? Interesting question. I hadn't really thought about it prior to hearing the question. Uh, And I can't answer it directly because I'm not sure what exactly Russia will do. But I would raise a couple of points. I don't think we're in a neo-Cold War. Russia was not going to stay in its cage for very long. The Russia of the 90s was in a humiliating place that if you look really at history, no country would allow itself to be in for very long. I mean, they went from being a major superpower in the world, very nationalistic country, uh, to really having a weakened stature on the world stage. We will face increasing conflict with them, but I don't think immediately that will make them the second superpower in the world or with the worldview of the Soviet Union. As you cite, a lot of the conflicts occurring, including the one in Georgia, are occurring right on their borders. And we would be very concerned about anything occurring on our borders as well. On that note, so your question about Cuba, I would say, well, another thing to look at is that there's an American... Uh, I should say, an anti-American alliance forming in our own hemisphere, or at least, an alliance of con- uh, at least an alliance of countries that thinks they can do well without us. Of course, led by Hugo Chavez of Venezuela, but also including some of the recently um, democratized, one might even say socialized countries, Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador, some of the Caribbean countries, and Cuba, kind of presenting a hostile front right now. Russia needs not take over any country in order to sort of cooperate with this new entity, uh, this new force to be reckoned with in our hemisphere. And lastly, in terms of President Bush and what his administration might have done or not done to encourage Russia to uh, attack Georgia. What I see as encouraging Russia is not so much the overextended position of our armies. It's not alone the factor that, well, we can get away with this because America is busy. That was something that occurred during the Civil War. And it's a semi-little-known fact of history that the French invaded Mexico while we were busy in the Civil War. They're too busy. They're not going to do anything about it. And after the Civil War, of course, they had to leave. So is it about that America's too busy, we're overextended? Well, our armies are certainly overextended with the Iraq operation. That's mostly because we're using a volunteer army. So obviously if there was some type of national emergency where needed uh, to increase the size of the army, America could certainly do it. We're not using our entire male population or even uh, a fraction of it that compares to other wars. What I really think in the Bush administration's procedures that have occurred that has encouraged Russia and will encourage other countries was the proactive strike against Iraq and the justification for it. Uh, you heard of Vladimir Putin using the term regime change, uh, one of the reasons for his invasion of Georgia. We sort of have changed uh, some of the moral conditions in the world stage, and other countries will use the same justifications we used for Iraq uh, 
I would say for the next 10 to 15 years as they decide that countries nearby them are also places that are threats to their security. And we'll have to deal with that. I want to thank you for listening. And the website is MyHistoryCanBeatUpYourPolitics.com. And uh, we do have the audiobook History Picks the President 2008. And in that we go through so many of the factors that uh, are often used to predict presidential races and take a look at the history behind them. Age, who one picks as the vice president, which party controls the Congress, which party controls the White House, etc. My history can be at purepolitics.com. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.